Good morning, everyone. Our Bible reading for today is taken from the book of First Samuel, chapter 17, from verse 1 to 11, and then verse 40. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socor in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes, Damim, between Socor and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of, of scale armor and bronze weighing 500 shekels. On his legs, he wore a bronze grief and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver, a weaver's rod and its iron point weighs 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the army of Israel. Give me a man and let him fight. And let us fight each other. On hearing these, the Philistines, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's, shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we will pray for Pastor Jackson together as he comes to share the word with us. Thank you, sir. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day that we are assembled here. We are Assembled here with different things in our hearts, O oh Father. Some of us are intimidated spiritually, psychologically, physically. But above every other thing, you are God. Lord, we pray for the word that you've put in Pastor Jackson's heart today to share with us. Father, that word, it's going to be a liberator of whatever thing we are going through this day. 
Let your power, O God, fill our hearts and take control of us this day and forevermore as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Good morning. I just want to remind you to keep praying for Robin in Maryland. A healthy Robin is a gift to us. So we want him to get refreshed and come back and, and be ready to go. And I also want to thank Sean and the other folks who do sound and tech. I'm tell- it, you have no idea how complicated it is. And so I just appreciate those guys and all that they do. In grad school, I had to take 10 hours of Hebrew. 10 hours over three semesters. And at the end of the three semesters, we were going to have a final exam just on vocabulary. Now, Donna remembers very clearly through those years of me being in grad school, of having a ring with a number of uh, little uh, uh, pieces of paper on them with various words as I'm learning Greek and Hebrew. Final. This is final. And he said, I'm only going to pick 10 words. Oh, there's several hundred words. You're going to pick 10. So I go to class. I'm shaking in my boots. I have tried to learn all these words over the time. I think I'm ready to go. And he comes in and he says, I've got a spiritual truth for you this morning. He says, I'm going to allow you to pick one person from the class to take the exam for all of you. Whatever they get, everyone else gets. First, I said, amen. (laughs) And then we began to look around. Well, there was a woman in our class named, I love this name, Jesse Bible. And Jesse was the curve breaker. You know, she sat in the very front. Man, we knew she had it. We knew. So we all begin to go, Jesse, Jesse. So Jesse comes and sits in the very front seat, and he takes an overhead. Remember an overhead? He took a, a plastic sheet with an overhead projector, and he begins to write five Hebrew words. And she has to do this orally in front of everybody. He writes it. She gets it. He writes the second one. She gets it. You could feel the rumble in the class as we all get excited. And and then we began to chant, Jesse, Jesse. She gets three, four, and five. And now he flips. Now he writes English, and she has to give the Hebrew word. Six, seven, perfect, eight, gets nine. Nine. She gets nine. I'm going to get a 90. I'm good. (laughs) Then the tenth one, she gets it right a hundred percent. A hundred percent, my first hundred percent in Hebrew class. Her grade was applied to everybody else's grade in the class. Jesse was an unlikely champion for us. And our professor, Dr. Trotman, said, I hope you never forget because we have a champion whose score has been applied to us. And I tell you, I have never forgot that. One, because I got a hundred, but two... That truth that he communicated, a champion on our behalf. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me just pray briefly. Father God, we invite you into this space. Of course, we know you're here. You're everywhere at the same time. But we're very mindful of your spirit encouraging and convicting and empowering us and revealing to us as your spirit works in our lives. Father, I pray too that whatever I might say would be quickly forgotten. Unless I say your words after you, then I know I can trust Isaiah 55 that your words never return to you without you accomplishing your agenda in the hearts of people. 
And Father, we claim the promise again in the book of James that we may not be just merely hearers of your word, but we would be doers of your word. Not just shaking our head, feeling convicted or encouraged and forgetting, but that we would put it into practice in our relationship with you and with each other. Now with your heads bowed, maybe your simple prayer is this this morning. Father God, speak to me. I am ready to listen. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible or you have your phone, turn with me. It's a much longer passage than we could fit on the back of the bulletin, but well, it'll be 1 Samuel 17. Obviously, a very famous story. Now, let me tell you how I first came across. Don and I have been to Israel many times, and maybe it's the second or third time we were there, and we're in a bus, and I happen to be sitting up front with Donna and our guide who we just love because normally I sit in the back, and we're driving by, and he just goes, just kind of off the cuff, Valley Vila, and we keep driving. I go, what? What? Stop the bus. The Valley Vila, David and Goliath, seriously, right here, this is it. I mean, I didn't know that it was still around. I didn't know what you did with the valley, but I, wouldn't know, I didn't know it was still around. You step out into this valley in this story. Now, you don't need to go to Israel to love God, but the Bible jumps off the page. And we stop and we look at this story. Now, let me show you a map. Let me just give you a couple of context here of where we are. All right, you can see the square and then you can see it up close. You can see where the Philistine cities are. And you can see then back where, and we'll talk about it more, where Bethlehem is, because it's really a strategic story. What happens here is really something that has happened strategically. Let me show you the second story, or a picture. This will help with the story. In this valley, then, there's two hills. And on one hill were the Israelites, and on the other hill were the Philistines. Now, they're there because the Philistines want to drive right down this valley. They're 20 kilometers or 12 miles from Bethlehem. The Philistines had the fertile valley. The Israelites lived up in the hills and the mountains because they did not have the power to recapture the fertile land. The Philistines had iron. The Israelites didn't. And the Philistines were strong. And so the Philistines have mustered the troops as they want to head down this valley and they want to turn at Bethlehem and they want to conquer the Israelites. So the Israelites muster up and they gather on one hill and then on the other hill. Now, what happened every day, we're told for 40 days, for 40 days, they would muster. It seems like they must have lined up on the hills. And then Goliath, this guy Goliath, steps out. Now, Dr. Daniel read this well, but I just want us to remind us, look at verse 4, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath. Now, let me stop. Gath was a place where they trained you from young to be a warrior. Think of District 2 in the Hunger Games, where they trained you from, being, from a youngster to be a warrior. He came out of Gath, the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now let me just pause for a moment. I want us to kind of get his arms around this. Now, when we talk about a, a, a cubic... A cubic, there's two ways to measure. A cubic either went from your elbow into the tip of your middle finger, or a shorter cubic went from your elbow to your wrist. 
Now, if we measured Goliath by elbow to the tip of the finger, he's nine feet tall. But if you do the shorter span, he's six feet nine inch, or he's 2.1 meters. All right. The average Turkish, British, and American male today is 1.7 meters tall or five foot nine. That's the average. Jewish males during this time, based on archaeological finds, they believe were 1.67 meters or 5 feet 5 inches tall. David was probably 12-ish years old, and he's probably even shorter than that at that point. So what would it look like? Let me show you a picture. This is a Turkish gentleman. He is the tallest man in the world right now. He is 2.52 meters tall or 8 feet 3 inches tall. The guy there, George Wessels, is Sultan's shoemaker. He's 1.8 meters tall or 5 feet 10 inches tall. You can see the difference. You can see the intimidation. So whether he's 9 feet or 6.9, which I tend to hold to, it would have been awesome of his size compared to the average Israelite, compared to David. And notice it says, his shield bearer goes before him. His shield bearer would have been a younger guy. The comparison to the shield bearer to Goliath would have been huge. And Goliath was also mammoth. He was strong. All these things that they tell us, tell us about his strength and his ability. His coat of mail is five or 5,000 shekels, 54 kilos or 120 pounds. That is a lot of weight that this Goliath dude is carrying. I mean, he is an awesome, strong guy. 1 Samuel 17, 8, it says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day, and here's the key, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now look at the response on hearing the Philistine's words. Saul, now Saul, we know Saul was a head taller than everybody else. If anyone was equipped to go fight Goliath, it should have been Saul. Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. I mean, they are shaken in their boots. Now, it's not unusual, and we know this from ancient literature, you know it from the Iliad and other places, that it was not unusual to identify one person to fight on behalf of others. It saved a lot of lives. Pick your best. We'll pick our best. But here's the key. That you believed you went to the name of your God. It was not just you fighting man to man. It was also the power of your God enabling you to conquer the other one and his God. And we see that again in the language that is being used in this text. All right, now we get David, the anti-hero, the shepherd boy. Twelve years old, watching sheep. And his father says to him, it's time for you to go to check on your brothers again. He has three brothers who are fighting in this battle or or on the Israelite side. He said, I want you to take some food, some bread to them, and take some cheese to their commander. This also tells us a little bit about this is a ragtag army. This is a put-together army because they're having to trust their families to provide. 
So David comes and it says he leaves his stuff with the man who oversees the equipment and he goes to the front line to find his brothers. And he hears Goliath in that deep voice of his down in the valley calling out the Israelites and trash talking. You're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. And you're God. I mean, he begins to take shots at the God of Israel, which begins to stir an anger in David, a righteous anger in David. So David turns and he says, what will happen to the guy who goes and fights him? They said, oh, wow, a couple things. Saul said, you'll get wealth. King Saul said, you can marry one of his daughters and your family doesn't have to pay taxes. Huh. Verse 26, and David said to another man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies? Here it is, the living God. Now David's older brother overhears this conversation. So typical, so typical of the older brother. Shush, man, you punk. You shouldn't be here. Drop the stuff, go home. Something happens. David says some things that others take very strongly that David thinks he can take Goliath. Because word gets passed up to Saul, and Saul calls David. David said to Saul in verse 32, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and in the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. (laughs) So Saul, 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 go and the Lord be with you. Now David tried on the armor that Saul had. It doesn't fit. He's not used to it. He can't walk around in it. He says, I got this. And he goes to the stream. And the stream is still there. He goes to the stream and he picks up five smooth stones. Now, the reason we get that piece of smooth stones is because they sail better. For those of us that ever skip rocks on a lake, we know that the smooth ones skip far better. They carry far better. So he picks five smooth stones and he puts them in his pouch. Now, let me show you the kind of sling he used. He had a slingshot, but not the kind that many of us grew up on. Go to the next one. Right there, good. Now, these things are incredible. They can go 160 kilometers or 100 miles an hour. It takes two years training to be able to hit something I want to make sure I get this right. 18 meters are 60 feet away, the size of a plate, and it takes that much training in an additional year or two to be able to hit something like that on the move. Well, David had a lot of time as a shepherd. He had a lot of time. He became very proficient with this thing. He was very, very good at this thing. Now, let me show you another picture. I went online this week, spent way too much time watching guys throw slings. And man, they are good. This guy in particular, he did it a number of different ways, a number of different places. And you know what's interesting? The sling is still used today in the Middle East. Donna, would you go to the next picture for me? David walks out to address Goliath. 
And it says, Goliath despised him because he was handsome and because he was young. And Goliath goes, am I a dog? And David and Goliath curses David by his gods. Oh, not a good thing to do. David makes very clear why he's there. First Samuel 17, 45, David said to the Philistine, You have come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that this is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Now I want you to picture a 12-year-old. Looking up at this giant. You, dude. You. And then it says David runs. Why? Because you're picking up speed as you spin this thing. You're picking up speed to get. And David lets that thing go. And he strikes Goliath right below his helmet line. Probably the only uncovered part. And he knocks Goliath. Probably knocks him out. And then he walks over to Goliath and he pulls out that humongous sword of his with both hands and all the strength he can muster and gets it up over his head and the weight of it falls on Goliath's neck. Then verse 51 says, When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. I mean, it's such a great story. Even those who aren't followers of Jesus kind of know the story of David and Goliath, right? But there's something larger at play here than just David and Goliath. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe David and Goliath is a true story. I absolutely believe it took place. You go and stand in that valley, you read this story, it's the coolest thing. But I think there's a bigger story. I mean, what would have this meant to the original hearers? God provides a champion for his people, an unlikely champion for his people, a man responding by faith, defending the name of God for the sake of the nation. God has not forgotten his people. But David stands in a long line of men who have done that in the Bible, of women who have done that in the Bible, stood for God's name and God's people. Moses, Elijah, Nehemiah, Ezra, just to name a few. But the story is also part of a larger story, a meta story. A story that takes us backward and a story that takes us forward. See, the writer of Samuel is showing us a conflict between two kingdoms. It starts in Genesis and it plays out all the way through the book of Revelation. So the question we ask then is who does Goliath represent in this meta story? Well, I think there's all kind of Jewish clues. What's interesting is the storyteller spends more time on Goliath's armor than he does on the battle itself. That should tell us something. Now, just this next little bit I took from someone else. I just want to share it with you. I find it interesting. 
You see three sixes in the description of this armor. Six cubits in a span, six pieces of armor. The spearhead weighed 600 shekels. The number six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. He works six days and he rests. The beast in Revelation has six connected to his name. It's the culmination of human pride and dependence of God in opposition to Christ. Could Goliath be representing something far larger than just the Philistine army? All right, now back to Jackson Crumb Study Bible. If you look at verse 5, this stuck out to me. He has a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor. Scale armor. Saul's armor is described later in verse 38, but he just calls it a coat of armor. Why the word scale? Now, it's true. It's in the Hebrew. But why scales? Well, let me give you one more piece. Then what does David do after Goliath is struck down? He cuts off his head. Does that sound familiar? Let's look at the New Living Translation of Genesis 3.15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The evil one will be crushed. His head will be crushed. Is Goliath the snake? Is Goliath standing in the place of the evil one? A picture of one who resists God. If Goliath invites us to look back, then David invites us to look forward. The story is meant to point out to us there's a greater story. There's a greater David. The text calls us to compare and contrast these two Davids, the greater David being Jesus. Now look at some of these parallels. David is from Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. David is a shepherd. Jesus is called the great shepherd. David is an unlikely victor, just a boy and not a soldier. And Jesus is an unlikely victor. Jesus comes the first time, not riding on a white horse, but riding on a donkey as someone who is humbled. This wasn't David's fault, and Jesus fights a fight that wasn't his fault. David's victory benefits others, and Jesus' victory benefits others. Israel wins by David's victory, and we win by Jesus' victory. David gave hope to his federal Israelites in his victory, and Jesus gives us hope in his victory. David wins by killing Goliath. Jesus wins by dying and being resurrected. Our victory as followers of Jesus is that Jesus took on our three greatest Goliaths for us. Satan, sin, and death in one. The better David, Jesus, is champion over the greater Goliath, Satan. Not by living, but by dying. Colossians 2.15, which we'll put up here on the screen. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God did to the spiritual powers and authorities what they delighted in doing to Jesus. The shame of Jesus being dragged through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to the cross, hanging naked as a Jewish man on a cross. The shame. 
And Christ disarmed Satan and his demons and took away their power. He made a mockery of Satan on the cross. See, Satan thought he had won. As Jesus hung on the cross, Satan thought he had defeated God's plan. Instead, Satan fell perfectly in line with God's plan. The head of the snake is crushed. And the victor is wounded. The better David, Jesus is champion over the greater Goliath's sin, not by living, but by dying. Colossians 2.13, which we'll put up here. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Another way that Jesus has disarmed the powers of the evil one is he has taken away one of Satan's greatest weapons against us to accuse us, to point his finger at us, to remind us of the debt of our sin and our rebellion against God. Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last! Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. The justice of God has put the evil one to shame. God has met the penalty of sin through the death of his son, satisfying his justice, and yet at the same time showing his great mercy by extending forgiveness to those who have offended him. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Some of you have been to London. And there's an old building called Old Bailey, which is the courthouse. And on top of the courthouse is the statue of justice, Lady Justice. No blindfold, for she sees clearly a sword in her hand. But just a few blocks away, you can walk a little farther, and what you find is St. Paul's Cathedral. And on top of the cathedral is a cross. Don and I were walking one time down the street, and you can stop in a certain place on the street, and you can see Old Bailey here, and you can see St. Paul's here. You can see the judgment here, but you can see the cross here. As Christians, we stand before the judgment of God, but we stand in the shadow of the cross. For our judgment did not fall on us, but it fell upon another. The better David, Jesus is champion over the greater Goliath, death not by living, but by dying and by walking out of the grave. Hebrews 2.14 says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. 
Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Several years ago, my mother died. She had inoperable, incurable cancer. About eight months from the time that it was discovered till the die, she stepped, the time she stepped into her eternity. You know what I have found as a pastor over the years is giants give David a chance to shine. We find courage by watching those who choose to live in victory. It was strange taking my mom to funeral homes, helping her pick out her casket, sitting down with her and walking through her service. I had done that with many others walking through their service, but not my mom. And one day, the two of us were sitting together, and I looked at her, and I said, how are you handling this? You have not complained. You've not once said, why me? You've not pointed your finger at God. How are you sorting this out? She said, I've lived a good life. I'm a follower of Jesus. I know where I'm going. Why should I be afraid of dying? Because the greater David has defeated the great Goliath called death. (laughs) The thing I've learned over the years as a pastor is that followers of Jesus die well. I've done funerals for followers of Christ and I've done funerals for those who aren't. And I'm telling you, there is a huge difference for those who are followers of Jesus. Followers of Christ die well. Jesus models his power over death in the raising of the widow's son in Nain in Luke 7 and Jairus' daughter in Mark 5 and Lazarus in John 11. And because we're followers of Christ, we have been connected to Jesus by faith in his experience. We have died with him and we will be raised with him. Two weeks ago, Don and I were in Geneva. We had to get some training and we went to Geneva for a few days and being a history buff and being in the home of John Calvin, you know, one of our our historical Uh, heroes of the faith, regardless of whether you agree with everything he said or not. It it was just fun to be there and to go to his church and to see where the academy started and all that kind of stuff that I geek out on and the Reformation wall. And thankfully, I married a woman who will come along with those things and loves those things too. But let me give you a John Calvin quote. There's no tribunal so magnificent, no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as is the gibbet, the cross on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, the prince of death. There's times I read something, I go, I wish I wrote that. If Jesus has defeated our greatest Goliath, then there's no Goliath that he cannot defeat. The better David Jesus is champion over the greater greater Goliaths around us and in us. And what are our daily Goliaths? 
unresolved conflict with others, lingering illness, things that we keep thinking and doing that we know offend God, a marriage that's not improving, issues with our children, unmet desire to be married. But you know what I have found in my own life? The Goliath within me is far greater than the Goliath I face. How often do we believe that God should just defeat those Goliaths for me? Just take care of those things. Because I really don't want to change. Just move the person I'm having conflict with. Just heal me. Just meet what I want financially. Just take away this thing that I'm struggling with. Just change my spouse. Just make my kids behave. Just bring someone into my life that I can marry. Now, come on, God, what's the big deal? The big deal is we don't want a champion. We want a genie. We don't want a champion. We want a genie. We want to be able to rub the lamp and have Jesus show up and for us to go, all right, see this? Take care of that. And this? Fix that. The issue is really the Goliath within us needs to be defeated first. We must change. We must see the need to change. We need to believe that we can change. And you know what? That power is already within us. The power of the greater David is within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our prayer first needs to be, change me. Not change them, not fix that. And frankly, that's one of the hardest prayers to pray, as Jim said earlier, going deep. You know what? I need Goliath in my life to remind me it's me first. Change me first. Change the way I look at it first, that I believe, God, you are powerful enough for me first. After a couple of months of living here, I was having so many issues. My Ikemet wouldn't come through, and because my Ikemet wouldn't come through, my phone got turned off. I didn't know why my phone got turned off. So one day, late in the afternoon, when it's stinking hot and humid outside, in the brilliant summer of... Antalya, I walk up to the street where the tram goes back and forth, and there's four different uh, phone carriers. Now, I didn't know there was four. I just thought there was mine. So I went to the one I thought was mine. I went in and said, my phone doesn't work. And they open it up and look at my SIM card. It, and they say to them, oh, this isn't a SIM card from us. Yours is across the street. What do I know? Okay. So I cross the street. I go in. They take my SIM card. Oh. We don't have this SIM card. This isn't us. You're down the street a couple of, couple of places down there. And she walks me out and points. Oh, okay. I go down there. They take out my SIM card. They say to me, oh, we don't have your SIM card. You don't belong to us. You're across the street. I was about to lose my salvation. <laughs> I was frustrated. Come to find out, really was the first place I went. But that's another story. So I go into this last place. And this poor lady, she, she's so frustrated. She can't speak English. I can't speak Turkish. And we just look at each other. And we're both frustrated. So I go, 
I go out into the street and I go, does anybody speak English? (laughs) And this Turkish gentleman, you know how they all say, a little, a little. So I go, please, come in. I drag him in. We walk through this whole thing. Finally, the lady looks at this guy and says, it's not our card. My phone doesn't work, so I don't know when the buses are coming or where to get a bus, so I walk home. I am hot. I am ticked. I go home. I see Donna. Donna looks at me and says, well, I go, why can't someone just speak English? (laughs) And Donna goes, you are being the ugly American. (laughs) And then she wanted to hug me and go, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. See, I thought when I moved here, man, I gave up a lot. We sold our home. We got rid of all our stuff. I resigned from my job that I loved. We moved here. I moved to another country. God, I'm all in. I'm investing. I'm all in. Come on. Make this stuff easy for me. You owe me. And God has that way to remind us, I'm not done in you yet. You got a Goliath that needs to be conquered. Let's bow our heads. What is your Goliath? The Goliath within you before the Goliath in front of you? And what is that Goliath showing you? And then what do you need to remember about the greater David? I needed to be reminded that things will be hard, but my God is not far. He is close and walking with me, and I need his patience. I need his endurance. He owes me nothing. Father God, I pray for us as we look at this story. And we love this story. It's such a powerful story. An unlikely champion. But Father, we thank you too that the greater David was an unlikely champion that stood in our place and hung on a cross. And we thank you, Father, that he now, his spirit is at work within us. We want to defeat the Goliaths within us so we can confront the Goliaths in our lives. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.